Just a word of caution, this podcast does contain material related to sexual assault, which could be upsetting to some listeners. Please make sure you're emotionally resourced and seek help from a trauma specialist or medical professional if you need it. We will often have people come back to us six months after the case, a year after the case, and tell us how positively their lives have changed. To me straight, don't leave out a word, don't leave out anything you think I should have heard. Hi, and welcome to Slut or Nut, the podcast. I'm Kelly Shoker, and I'm the director of Slut or Nut, the Diary of a Rape Trial, which is a feature-length documentary film exploring what it is like to report rape and following activist Mandy Gray as she fights to change how victims of sexual assault are treated by the criminal justice system. And I don't want to say too much before today's episode because we have a lot of ground to cover in today's interview with Simona Jelinek. She is a sexual assault and personal injury lawyer in Toronto, and she's also the founder of the Jelinek Law Office, which is a law firm that specializes in sexual assault and personal injury. Um, With that, I'm going to let Simona introduce herself. So my name is Simona Jelinek. I'm a lawyer with Jelinek Law Office, and uh, our focus at our law office is representing survivors of sexual assault, both historical as well as present-day assault. Everybody comes to us uh, with their own unique story and, and in different ways, but in general, uh, once they contact the office, they have a very preliminary conversation with one of my clerks to take down some basic information and to make sure that it is something that we may be able to help them with. Um, that information is then passed on to one of the lawyers, usually myself, and I look at it, and if it's something that we do think that we can help with, we set up a phone call between that person and, uh, and and one of the lawyers in the office. During that phone call, we ask a few more questions, a few more details to clarify or, or, or to get information that we need, and we outline the various options that that person has. We talk to them about the possibility of going to the police and reporting the assault and what that entails, good and bad of that. We talk to them about the possibility of going to the Criminal Compensation Board, which is a government-run board that has the ability to compensate victims of crime in Ontario. We talk to them about the possibility of a, of, of a human rights complaint. And we also talk to them about the possibility of whether or not they wish to sue the perpetrator of the assaults and any institutions that may be legal responsible for the perpetrator's actions. We go through each of those options. We talk to them about timelines. We talk to them about how difficult it is, how easy it is, the good, the bad, the ugly, the pros and cons. And we generally then allow that person a bit of time to make a decision as to which possibility or which possibilities they wish to pursue. If the person decides to pursue civil litigation, then we set up another meeting with that person, usually in-person meeting, but a lot of our clients don't live in Toronto, so we often will do telephone meetings or Skype meetings. And we start by collecting the information. And from there, that gives us an idea of who the person was, what happened to them, and how what happened to them has has had an impact on their life. Can you break down for me what a civil suit is? Break it down like I'm a teenager and I've never heard the term civil suit before. Sure, sure. Um, I've done that quite a few times, so it's, it's really not that 
uh, not that uncommon. Um, a civil suit is um, an opportunity to right a wrong. Um, it is a situation where you have been hurt, and in this case assaulted, and you are using the court process to get compensation for what happened to you. Um, the civil justice system is very different than the criminal justice system. The criminal justice system is essentially the government who is prosecuting a claim against the person who allegedly created or allegedly did the crime. A civil case is you taking, taking advantage of the ability to, through the courts to order the person who is responsible for your damage to pay you compensation. So they're very, very different system. In one, in the criminal system, you are, you are essentially a witness to the crown. Um, in a civil system, you are a party to the action, which means that you as the plaintiff, that's what, that's what you'd be called, are the one driving the action, are the one who's in control of what happens, and are the one who can decide to go forward, to stop, to settle, to go to trial, anything like that. So what you would have to prove in a civil case is, is essentially two things. You have to prove what we call liability and what we call damages. Liability is that somebody did something wrong or that somebody is responsible for somebody else doing something wrong. So the person who did the assault is, is the primary defendant because that's the person who physically touched. Whereas you have other defendants for instance, institutions that may be in law responsible to, for allowing that, that person to hurt you. Um, and you have to prove liability. You have to prove that it happened. You have to prove um, the, the, the legal doctrines, the legal theories around why an institution that may not have done anything wrong is still going to be held liable in civil court. The other thing that you have to prove is what we call damages. And damages are basically that, that you've been hurt. There are two types of damages. The first is what we call general damages. A lot of people know them as pain and suffering. And it's an amount of money that a judge will give you as a symbol to say, we understand you've been hurt. Take this as, 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 a, as, a, as an understanding that you've been hurt. In Canada, pain and suffering damages are quite limited. They're not the huge million dollar awards that you see in the United States, but they can be significant. The other aspect of damages is what lawyers call special damages. And the easiest way to figure out what a special damage is, is that if it's something that you can put a dollar sign in front of, that would be a special damage. A very simple example of that would be therapy costs. We know that going to a therapist is, call it $150 a session. You can easily put a dollar sign in front of how many therapy sessions you've had in the past and give a good idea as to how many therapy sessions you're going to have in the future. Uh, medication costs as well. Those are, those are easy numbers to calculate. Where it becomes more difficult to understand uh, loss in terms of, of special losses, dollar losses, is whether or not the assault has had an impact on your ability to earn money. And that's, that's, that's where we spend an awful lot of time fighting. Um, for some people, it has a very small impact, and for other people, it has a huge impact. The question is, What's the impact and, and was it caused by the assault or was it a combination of factors or did it have nothing to do with the assault because the day after the assault, I don't know, you got into a car accident and couldn't work because of the car accident to, to give you a very, very simplistic 
um, explanation. So those are the two things that you have to prove in a civil case. And you do that by going through the civil justice system, by going to the various examinations and pretrials and mediations and ultimately the trial. Um, the biggest benefit of going the civil route is that you're in charge, you're in control. Um, this is your case. It's not the Crown's case and you're a witness to it. This is your case. Um, you are the one who has chosen to move forward. You are the one that has chosen to assert your strength and employ the legal process against the person who hurt you. For a lot of people, that is a, a very, very empowering thing for them because um, sexual assault is, is, is not about sex, it's about power. And the civil system is one method by which the survivor can start to regain some of the power that was taken from them. Um, so that's, a, that's one of the best things about the civil system. Um, the control goes throughout. Um, notwithstanding that there are things that you have to do because you're within a court process, um, there's some control over the timing of that. There's some control over whether or not you decide to do it because if you decide not to do it, you can also decide to try to settle it beforehand or even drop it. Um, those are things that don't necessarily, uh, that, that aren't in your control if you are part of the Crown's case. Um, so. If it gets to the point where you're no longer interested, there are ways, there are mechanisms for you to, for you to stop it. Um, one of the things that is also important in the civil system that a lot of people um, have a lot of benefit from is that the civil system is about making you whole or trying at least to make you whole. Unfortunately, the civil system, no system can give you back your life the second before the assault happened, but your life has changed and chances are there has been there 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 have been economic consequences. And the civil system is the mechanism by which the people who are responsible can compensate you for what happened. And that compensation can be used to get very good therapy to try to make you as whole as possible. It could be used to um, help you continue living in the in, in, in the sense of not if you hadn't been able to work or something like that. So there is something that, and as well uh, with a lot of things, um, if, the, if the defendants are the ones who's caused this, having them pay you means that hopefully, especially for institutions, they will change their policies, they will change their procedures, and they will be a little bit more interested in making sure that, that this doesn't happen on their watch anymore. So those are, are, are some of the things that clients have told me are very important for them. Some of the cons of a civil system is that unfortunately it takes an awful long time. Obviously there's an awful lot of interaction with the lawyer in terms of taking down the information, understanding the information, going through the story, going through the history, going through all of that. Um, that could be a, a lot of hours right there, depending on, on, on how detailed your, 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 your story and your history are. Um, there is the contact with the lawyer's office with regards to just clarifying certain things or setting up appointments, whatever else. Um, there is the preparation between you and the lawyer with regards to any kind of examinations that are coming up or reviewing documents or, or what have you. There is uh, likely the examination for discovery, which is an opportunity for the other side to ask questions and um, for us to ask them questions. That, uh, that's usually at least a day 
of, of preparation and at least the day at the examination itself. There's preparation and attendance at the mediation, there's preparation and attendance at the uh, pre-trial, and then there's a the trial itself, which is usually uh, two to six weeks. So I, I don't know how much actual hours that is, but those are the hours spent actively dealing with your case. The, the other side of that, of course, is that um, it, it doesn't take into account all the hours that you yourself spend thinking about the case. And because it takes an awful long time, there's, there's often a sense of, of waiting, a sense of this is never going to go away, essentially. Um, and, and that can be a very difficult thing to go through. Um, clients have often expressed the fact that if they know that there's a court date coming up six months from now, for between now and when that court date, there's a lot of thinking about that. There's a lot of um, being upset, being anxious about that, and, and all of that. So there is, there is that. Um, however, um, we, there are ways that we can alleviate some of those concerns in the office, and we try as best we can. Um, the other con of, 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 the, uh, of the system is, is, is the flip side to the compensation. Um, it's exactly that. It's only about compensation. The civil system can't put the perpetrator in jail, can't force the perpetrator or the institution to change the ways that they do things. The only thing that, that the civil system can do, the only thing that a judge could ever order, is compensation. And sometimes that rings hollow to some people, um, and for some people it, it, it's not enough. And sometimes for those people, the civil system isn't the way to go. The other issue, of course, is that for there, for there to be compensation, there must be the ability for the defendants to pay that compensation. These cases are very long and can be very, very expensive. And the last thing that we would ever want to put our clients through is a very long and difficult case that can stretch out years and years and years and cost literally $100,000 or more if at the end of the day they have a piece of paper that says that they're owed $300,000, but the perpetrator doesn't have any money to pay and will never have the money to pay. So those are all the things that really do have to be weighed. And we try to explain all of this to our clients before they come in. And, and when they're here, we, we, we remind them of them constantly so that they have a very good, clear idea as to what it is that is happening with them and how it is that they can go about uh, making healthy choices. What is the average length of time that it takes for the civil process? Somewhere between uh, two to six years. Okay. And why does it take so long? Because these cases are very complicated sometimes. Um, these cases are among the most complicated when it comes to personal injury cases. Sexual assault, sexual abuse is, is really a subset of personal injury law. Um, so these these cases are very difficult. Oftentimes they become longer because of the mental health of our own clients. So if 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 the if the client is going through a particularly difficult time, um, it may be in their best interest to back off a little bit. Um, it all really depends. Sometimes it takes so long simply because we're waiting for the court. Um, if we've got lots and lots of different lawyers involved, then sometimes it takes a long time because we're all very busy and to try to find one date that five different lawyers, for instance, can, can, can agree on is sometimes far into the future.
in, in a civil case, uh, it is your case to prove. You are the plaintiff and you're suing the, the uh, defendants. So as part of it being your case to prove, you have to um, establish various things that happened, what your damages were, all of that. In order to do that, you have to provide to the defendants uh, documentary discovery, which means that you have to give the defendants your medical records, uh, therapy records, um, educational records, employment records, every record that somebody has about you, you've got to give that to them. Um, likewise, they have to give you the records that they have. They, they don't necessarily have to give you their medical records unless that's somehow pertinent, uh, and usually it's, it's not. Um, at the examination for discovery, the focus of the examination for discovery is to, is to put meat on those records. Right? Those records are bones. We need to put some meat on them. We, have, we need to understand why you, know, why you did this, why you did that. Everything becomes relevant because your sexual assault that is the focus of that litigation has caused damages, but the kinds of damages that it has caused is based on who you were before the assault, which means that everything in your life before and everything in your life afterwards becomes relevant. Um, if you had a history of being assaulted um, many, many times beforehand, that that's relevant because it affects um, it affects how you've reacted to this assault. Um, if you had uh, a very very traumatic car accident when you were an, when you were an, when you were a teenager and lost your leg as a result, that's going to affect your mental health. So so there are very very few questions that aren't relevant in a civil case. Um, that being said. Um, there are some, some, sometimes people overstep their bounds and that's why you have a lawyer to make sure that the questions that are asked are appropriate and legally relevant. Um, I can tell you that by and large, the civil bar when it comes to these cases is, is, is relatively respectful. Um, they have a job to do and they've got to ask you the hard questions, but it doesn't necessarily take on the oftentimes very aggressive tones that you see in some criminal cases. Sometimes it does, absolutely, but um, most often than not, it's, it's, it's a, I don't want to say friendlier, but it's, it's, not, as, it's not as adversarial. Um, most civil litigation cases settle without going to trial. Statistically, I think the courts have told us that 98% of cases that are filed uh, end up in some sort of settlement. So, so from a from a pure statistic point of view, you're unlikely to go to trial, and there's a lot of different reasons for that. And 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 the biggest reason is that the way that the civil litigation system is is set up is to try to get parties to come together and to settle before the trial. There's a lot of um, procedures in place to to encourage that. So, there are very few of these cases that go to trial. Sometimes they, they will settle the Friday or the Sunday before the Monday morning start of the trial, um, or sometimes they'll settle you know, a year into the case. It's, it's very, very difficult to say, but the vast majority of cases don't go to trial. You know, um, we have had uh, survivors, our clients, who are uh, completely overjoyed at what they did and feel so empowered because they stood up to their abuser. Um, we've had survivors 
expressed to us that they felt um, re-victimized because the system is is difficult. It's a lot easier than than the criminal, but it's still a system, and it's still you still have to go through the motions. Um, we have had our clients um, not do well during the tri the uh, the case, and we've had clients do very well during the case. So it's 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 difficult to say, and I I don't necessarily think that anybody knows how they would react until it's actually happening to them. Um, what I can tell you is that we will often have people come back to us six months after the case, a year after the case, and tell us how positively their lives have changed. Um, often right after the settlement, people do go through a mix of emotions. Um, one minute they're thrilled that it's over, the next minute they regret that they settled for too low money, or this is blood money, or um, I didn't get what I wanted, or I'm so happy I never have to deal with this again, all of that. There's, there's a huge range of emotions that people will go through, but ultimately when that, when that uh, acute period of time starts to fade, um, a lot of people do report that the fact that they stood up for themselves, they, that they found the courage to come forward, makes them feel uh, empowered and, and, and has helped them move forward. Um, most people don't do anything. The vast majority of people who are assaulted either as children or as adults generally don't do anything. Um, for the people who do do something, it shows a tremendous amount of courage and it's changing society. Um, what's happening now is, is the culmination of the last 30 some odd years of people coming forward. 20 years ago, people didn't talk about this stuff. Um, it, was, it was there, but you really didn't, didn't, didn't talk about it very much. It was rare to see a media article. The first media articles that you started to see um, really were around <clears throat> Um, Maple Leaf Gardens and the Mount Cashel stuff. Um, but before Maple Leaf Gardens, which was the mid to late 90s, it was very, very rare that the media wanted to do anything other than report that somebody was convicted or not convicted. Mm -hmm. um, then you started seeing more interaction, more societal awareness that sexual assault does happen and it does happen to children and it does happen to adults um, and it's more than just that, 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 that that pervasive myth that it's the guy jumping out of the bushes. That happens, absolutely. But compared to all of the times that there are date rapes and it's somebody who you know, somebody who you trust, a family member, those are where most of the assaults happen, not the, not the guy jumping out of the bushes. Um, and that is, that is huge. It, 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 it makes it harder to, to perpetuate these crimes. But more importantly, these crimes will always happen. But how people react to them and how they get help earlier is what the difference is. And that, that means that lives will be saved and lives will be made so much better um, because they get help sooner. You know, kids are taught this in school. Most of my clients who are uh, historical abuse survivors, um, they're in their 50s before they come forward. And they've lived their whole lives not understanding why their life wasn't working out the way that they wanted it to or why they were always you you know using bad coping mechanisms like substance abuse and alcohol and whatever else or why their relationships kept failing or why they have had 60 jobs and can't hold anything down um, and it's 
it often is traced back to what happened to them as children. Um, the more this comes forward, the less that's going to happen and the more people get help sooner. So for a lot of people, that is a huge part of why they're coming forward. They don't want to let it happen to anybody else. Currently, the way that the law is right now, um, depending on who assaulted you and when you were assaulted, there are different limitation periods. Um, in most situations, however, if the assault was based on a power relationship, then there generally isn't a problem in coming forward, even if it happened years and years ago. Um, if you were mentally incapable of pursuing it, um, there are ways to come forward. A power relationship is one where the two parties are not of equal strength, not necessarily physical strength, but emotional uh, strength and psychological strength. Um, the typical power relationship is between a parent and a child. Obviously, the parent has so much power over, over the child. Um, another type of power dependency relationship would be with um, a therapist and, and a client. So your, your, your psychiatrist, for instance, or your doctor, or your lawyer even, uh, your priest, anything like that. There are also power relationships that um, extend beyond those kinds of roles and go towards teachers, teachers and students, for instance. There's also power relationships and certain relationships between employees and employers. So those are the kinds of power relationships that are, that are typical, if you will. Um, there can be more subtle power relationships that are based on age and experience and things of that nature, or some sort of financial benefit, or lots of different things. So a power relationship is where it's not two people meeting in a bar. It's two people that may have may may decide to meet in a bar, but the reason why they're meeting is because one person is that much more powerful than 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 the other and is and has somehow arranged that meeting. Sometimes you have cases that are very good with regards to liability. Um, but are very bad with regards to damages. Sometimes you have cases where the damages are, are very good, but the liability is very, is very difficult to prove. A case, for instance, that has good liability would be a case where you have a very set situation where the law has already recognized that the institution involved, for instance, um, will will eventually pay the damages. So to give you uh, probably the best example is if you are sexually assaulted by your clergy, by your priest or your rabbi or your minister, um, while he or she is uh, providing uh, spiritual and pastoral counseling to you, then the courts have already said that in those kinds of situations, the church or the uh, religious institution is going to be responsible for what that clergy member does. So as long as you can prove that it happened, either by way of uh, a criminal conviction against uh, the clergy member, or um, they admit, because sometimes they do, um, or whatever reason, then, then that is your, your, your very solid case on liability. Um, it's also good because if you've got an, an institution, you've got, frankly, a deep pocket that will be able to pay the compensation. Um, a, 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 a case that is very good on damages is a situation, um, for instance, where somebody is uh, assaulted um, in, a, in, a, in a parking lot, uh, for instance, um, doesn't know the perpetrator, just basically a, a random, horrible 
assault. Uh, and prior to the assault, they were uh, very well-rounded, very normal people, you know, went to the doctor for colds in their yearly checkups, no history of mental health issues in their family, no history of mental health issues with them. They had a steady nine to five job. Basically, you're, you're, you're quintessential normal person. Um, after the assault, they, they start to have mental health issues, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, what have you, aren't able to keep their job, um, have good therapy, and five years down the road are able to get back to a relatively normal existence. You know, they get back to their job, they still have some issues, but they're, they're more back to where they were. That is a very clean-cut case with regards to damages because there aren't very many pre-existing issues and they've gotten some help and they're able to move on. That's a very, very clean-cut case on damages, but a pretty bad case on liability because we don't know who, who the perpetrator is and you know, if the guy jumped out of the bushes, then there's no institution there. Um, so so there's, there's lots of different things and we often have cases which are which are very good on liability but bad on damages or bad on damages but good on liability. Every case is unique. Um, because every case is unique and because everybody reacts to sexual assault in different ways and sexual assaults can be any unwanted any unwanted touching that is of a sexual nature so it could be anything as as objectively low end for instance as uh, touching somebody's buttocks to the full extent of um, sexual uh, penetration, uh, all of that, violence, not violence, not. So, so what, what happens is very important to understand the impact on that person's life. So sometimes you have a situation where you've got a relatively, and I hate to use the word minor, but minor assault that actually has much more significant uh, consequences and you have somebody who is a very different person who's had a very traumatic assault but they have somewhat less consequences. Um, generally you have to put all of this together, you have to understand and um, the, the damage ranges can be anywhere between a couple of thousand dollars depending on what the person wants to upwards to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more than that. Most people, the way they, they cope is either to use alcohol or drugs. Um, but some people cope by becoming workaholics. It doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't trauma there. It's just it's just it's a more hidden kind of trauma. Um, much the same as brain injury, right? You know, if, if, if I've got a client um, who's in a car accident and suffers a devastating blow to their head and you know half their head is missing pretty easy to look at that person and say wow they've been they've been hurt they've got a brain injury if I've got the same result but the person's head looks fine but the person's brain was sloshed to the point where they have a severe head head injury but they look normal it's a lot harder to get people to to understand that he might look normal but talk to him for more than three minutes and you realize that there's nothing there. Yeah. Um, it's very, very different. Um, sexual trauma is a hidden pain and it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that is pervasive in someone's life, but a lot of people don't necessarily seem like they're doing that badly. And a lot of people go on most of their life without really understanding that this has had a huge impact on me, which is why getting good therapy right away 
is 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 the best thing that you can do for yourself or any loved one frankly um, the earlier you get therapy the earlier you start to deal with it um, the more you're going to be able to heal and the more that the impact will be minimized and there's there's study after study after study that show that show that as well as your initial disclosure and 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 whether people were were receptive to it or, or denied it yeah. um, you know in the past we've had a lot of clients who you know I told I told my mom about what my foster father did to me and she didn't believe me or you know, I got slapped on the face or something right that's a horrible thing to do because it sets up this whole I'm not worthy denial denial whatever um, luckily through education and through awareness and through media people are are now starting to listen to kids so you get less of that kind of reaction from from adults um, it really does depend on what the person wants as well you know we have had cases where people have have good solid cases that are worth a significant amount of money but they they're not in it for the money I mean most clients don't come to me and say I want as much money as as I can um, but there are some clients who for them sending off that letter sending off that statement of claim that's what they're looking for and even at the end of it if they get a couple of thousand dollars for them it's that acknowledgement notwithstanding that their case realistically on on a, on a purely legal analysis would be worth significantly more than that money how is the civil process intertwined with the criminal a criminal case and how would it impact your civil suit based on a verdict of a criminal case or if you filed a criminal case or how are they interrelated? Sure. Um, they can be interrelated or they cannot be interrelated. It really it really depends on the timing of filing either one. Um, most people will go to the police first um, because most people think that their only option is to go to the police. Uh, so, so generally what happens is that if somebody has gone to the police um, it is best to let that process finish first. Uh, you don't want to do anything to jeopardize that criminal process. Um, it is very difficult to get a conviction in the criminal justice system. So you don't want to be seen as somebody who has, shall we say, ulterior motives by going to a civil lawyer. And that's, that's what you want to avoid. Um, if you decide that you want to go to the police, then um, best to go to the police first you, there's no reason why you can't talk to a civil lawyer just to get some information but generally we we don't become retained until the criminal case is is, is over the reason for that is that um, a we want to do everything we can to preserve the possibility of, of a conviction but if there is a conviction one of one of the things that we have to prove it has already been proven, which is liability. So if there is a criminal conviction, there's no question about whether or not it happened. There's already been a finding that it did happen. That doesn't necessarily translate into a finding that the institution involved may be liable for what happened, but at least it takes away whether or not it happened. Um, the other reason why we want to wait to see what happens with the criminal case is that if the person is found not guilty we have to understand why they were found not guilty and there's lots of different reasons why people are found not guilty sometimes they're found not guilty because of technical issues that have really nothing to do with the credibility of the complainant of, of the victim um, but because of technical issues they're found not guilty something like that may not affect the civil case very much if on the other hand the person is found uh, not guilty and the judge makes a very clear 
statement on the credibility of the complainant, of the victim, and their lack of credibility, then it would be very, very difficult to pursue a civil case because you already have had a judge say, I don't believe this person. So we need to let the uh, criminal case run its course before the civil case starts. The other thing to keep in mind as well is that um, there's, there's no reason why you can't sue first and then go to the police. Um, a lot of people uh, don't understand that they can, they can go to the police, sue civilly, and go to the Criminal Justice Compensation Board at the same time. Usually it's not the best strategy to go at the same time. They have to dovetail properly, but you don't necessarily have to do one and then the other and then the other. They're, they're all interchangeable. We have had people settle their civil case and then decide to, to go to the police afterwards. And not having a criminal conviction doesn't negatively impact their ability to get uh, no, not at all. Um, whether or not you've gone to the police does not have any kind of impact um, negatively, uh, unless um, no, there, there's no, there's no impact. Uh, you can decide to go to the police. You can decide not to go to the police. That's very interesting. I would have expected that. If there's a conviction, it's easier. But um, there's, there's no. You have to go to the police first. No, you've got a lawyer fighting for you. Um, it, you're, you're the one who's hired this lawyer, you're the one who's, who's, who's doing this, and that lawyer is entrusted to make sure that they do everything they can to, to, to protect you and to pursue your best interests. In the criminal system, um, you don't have that. In, in, in the criminal system, you are the complainant. Even the very nature of that word, uh, in my opinion, is, 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 is offensive. You're the one who's complaining. Um, the Crown is not your lawyer. The Crown is the government's lawyer, and the Crown's obligation isn't to protect you, isn't to further your interests. The Crown's obligation is to determine whether or not a crime was committed and if they got the right person accused. That's what the Crown's obligation is. Um, you don't have a lot of safeguards if you are the witness, the complainant in a Crown's case. It's different within the civil. It's still difficult. It is absolutely difficult. And there are clients who have candidly told me if they had known how difficult it is, they would never have done it. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, it is a lot. There are more protections involved for people. And you're the one who's got more control. In, in the criminal system, the Crown can decide to drop your case. The Crown can decide to enter a, um, a plea bargain. Um, they, they do talk to you about it. But ultimately, it's not your choice. It's their choice. Civil system, it's very different. Um, most people who go through both systems will, will agree that the criminal has been much harder, unless, of course, there's, there's, there's a guilty plea early on. That's, that's a very, very different circumstance. The other issue as well is that even if there is a guilty plea, um, a lot of people are very disheartened by the fact that the, uh, the now guilty person um, often doesn't get very much more than a slap on the wrist, especially if it's their first offense. Um, and I mean, I've had, I've had my clients tell me, yeah, you know, he got six months and I got a life sentence. And a lot of people feel very, that that's a very real statement. Um, people don't get an awful lot of time in jail for this. Um, even in a situation where you have uh, sexually assaulted numerous people. Um, you might get 
couple of years, you might get five or six years. If it's a very, very bad situation, there's lots of people, it might be as much as eight or nine years. Um, but for the people that they've, they've hurt, um, the consequences can be lifelong, especially if it's happened as children and they never got help until much, much later on in their life. So um, th this is, again, one of the main differences between civil and criminal. Um, as, as your lawyer in a civil case, I have in my arsenal uh, a lot more tools than the Crown could possibly have in, in their arsenal. And again, that's because the roles are different. The Crown's role is not to be your lawyer. My role is to be your lawyer. And in doing so, um, I, can, I can employ various experts to help bolster our case, both in terms of liability and, and, and in terms of damages. So with regards to liability, if it is a case against an institution, um, there may be there may be an expert that can that can help with regards to uh, showing liability on the institution. That could be, for instance, uh, we had this one case years ago where um, we employed an expert to show that that the actual design of the office was conducive to people using that office for sexual assaults. Um, there wasn't a, a door. Uh, with a window, all those kinds of things. It was a, it was a really rather complicated uh, case. Um, sometimes we have experts with regards to policies and procedures. Um, so a lot of our cases, as I said, are, are, are historical. So we look for experts that can tell us the policies and procedures that, had, that, that were in place back in the 70s when my client was a seven-year-old in foster care and never saw his or her social worker. You know, how often were, were the social workers supposed to go in, for instance, something like that. Um, we also employ, and we more often than not employ, experts with regards to damages. And that would be uh, mostly either uh, clinical psychologists, PhD psychologists, or uh, psychiatrists that are able to diagnose under, um, under the Regulated Health Act um, mental health illnesses. Mm -hmm. So we would, we would send our client along with all the information that we have to, to, to one of these uh, experts, uh, to somebody who's recognized in, in the field, who's got all the right letters behind his or her name and who's got all the right publications and all of that and peer-reviewed articles and whatnot and who've hopefully um, been qualified as experts in, in, in court cases before. And that person would not only read everything but spend uh, a good amount of time with my client going through what happened and then prepare uh, what are, what's called a psychological impact assessment, which goes through what happened and all of the impacts uh, on all the various areas of the person's life and diagnosis with any kind of mental health issues and recommendations for, uh, for, uh, for treatment. Sometimes the recommendations for treatment go above that expert and we actually get cost of care experts. This is for very, very extreme cases where you're looking at people who require more than therapy, um, residential care or possibly PSW care, things like that. Once, once in a while it can happen with severe uh, mental health issues um, that are either existing beforehand that have just been exacerbated or whatnot. And then ultimately we also employ a, um, a forensic accountant to take all of the other expert reports and to figure out what the impact has been on this person's education. 
uh, and on this person's uh, employment. So um, sometimes that's a very difficult thing, especially if it happened when the child was six or seven. What do we know what a child is going to become when they're six or seven? But based on lots of different things, you can make some scenarios as to, as to what that child would have become. So if, if they're the only ones in their sibling group that doesn't have a college education, you can look at that and you go, well, they're also the only one who was, was assaulted, for instance, right? Um, Sometimes it's a bit harder for people who are already uh, adults uh, and sometimes it's a lot easier because you already have a path in life. Mm -hmm. And the question is, you know, how, how did this assault affect that path? Did it affect your ability to finish your PhD on time, for instance? Um, did it affect your ability to, once you got your PhD, either do postdoctoral or go right into trying to find a job? Uh, once you find that job, are you able to be as 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 good at that job as you were or is the anxiety and the trauma and whatever else yeah. holding you back so all of these things come into play and we can we can employ different experts in different areas to be able to educate a judge uh, we have had uh, people from every walk of life in our office we have had people who live um, under bridges we have had people who are multi multi-millionaires and among the political echelon of Canadian life. So there's no real typical survivor that doesn't exist. Um, anybody can be the victim of a sexual assault. Anybody can be a perpetrator of a sexual assault. Um, the, the, the myth is that uh, perpetrators are these kind of scary looking guys who live in their mother's basements and who jump out of uh, bushes. That's not true. Um, you can have people that are are very well-spoken uh, academics, politicians, uh, police officers, priests, anybody who, who 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 do this kind of thing. And you can have you know the guy at the bar that doesn't even understand that what he's doing is actually a sexual assault. You know, I mean, there's I taught a um, uh, I taught a class once where we were talking about what is a sexual assault. And when I got up there and, and I said, you know, if you're at a bar, guys, and you go up to a woman, even if it's somebody that you know, even if it's your friend, and you grab her, her bum, guess what? You've just sexually assaulted her. And you could see all of these guys, just their faces go blank because they, they probably did something like that, not realizing that's what, what they were doing. Likewise, you looked at, you looked at the, um, the women in the class and they were all going, really, that was a sexual assault? Yes, because a sexual assault is any kind of unwanted sexual touching. Um, that doesn't mean you, know, you have to ask permission before you give your girlfriend a peck on the cheek or something, but going up to somebody in a bar that you may not know very well and touching them that does become a sexual assault. So it's, it, it's every walk of life, it's every kind of person. Um, often people who are more vulnerable are the victims of, of more serious sexual assaults and that's simply because they are more vulnerable. Um, people who are perpetrators, people who are predators um, can sometimes really sniff out the people who are more vulnerable. Not always. Um, there are some very, very powerful people who still um, are sexually assaulted, um, but oftentimes it's the more vulnerable in society.
women with mental health issues are more likely to be sexually assaulted, but then the system seems to treat them so much more harshly than it would treat somebody that didn't have a history of any kind of mental health from exact, like, you know, any kind of range. So I was wondering if you could talk about how you've seen um, mental health issues impact civil suits or how those are. Sure. Um, Pre-existing mental health issues or pre-existing trauma affects civil suits in terms of the assessment of damages. Uh, usually not credibility with regards to whether or not it happened. Um, sometimes, but usually more so the impact is on uh, what lawyers call causation, what causes what. So if a person has a um, pre-existing history of mental health, um, depression, anxiety, uh, trauma earlier in their life, either because of another sexual assault or a car accident or a fire in their childhood home, what have you, and they carry with them those scars and those mental health scars. And then there is the assault in question or the assaults in question. The question then becomes, how much more of an impact did those assaults have on this person who already had some, some, some issues. And that's a very, very difficult thing to understand. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to understand because sometimes you're able to hold it all together relative, relatively well. You know, there's some water seeping at the seams, but you're able to hold it together. And what might seem a very small event will just crack everything open. Um, so causation is one of the things that we as civil litigators, we fight about that a lot, what causes what. Um, that being said, the flip side is that you get defense lawyers saying, you know, this person had no mental health issues prior prior to uh, this relatively minor assault, so they should be fine, and why aren't they fine? So unfortunately, um, in litigation, uh, everything can be used for you, and everything can be used against you, depending on which side of the... Uh, of that sword you're on. Most of these cases don't necessarily revolve around whether or not it happened. They revolve around whether or not there was consent, use um, sometimes, and they revolve around what the damages are. That's, that's basically it. Um, I can tell you that uh, most of our practice is historical sexual assaults in natures where people were um, hurt as children and years later they sue and there's there's almost always an institution involved um, or for adult sexual assaults it's usually a power relationship that um, negates any kind of consent even if it was there so um, it's it's usually not it didn't happen uh, or, or I mean sometimes it is it didn't happen um, but it's more the effect of what happened, and and then at, you know then you are looking at situations where the, where where the defense will say ah, you know the person was so damaged beforehand that whatever my client did was a drop in the bucket type of thing. We often will see things like that. In in our office, if we believe in the case, and by that I mean if we think that we will be successful and be able to obtain compensation that's going to be high enough to make sure that all the costs are paid and that the client has has a reasonable amount left over, um, then we will offer that client the possibility of going through the case on a, um, on a contingency basis, which means that if we win 
um, we get paid, and if we don't win, we don't get paid. Um, that is usually situations where there is an institution involved, because if there is an institution involved, there, there's either an insurance policy or the institution has the ability to pay. Uh, in cases where you've got an individual perpetrator, um, those are very different because with an individual perpetrator, you know, one, some, some guy, um, you don't necessarily know or you're almost always certain that they don't have an awful lot of money to their name. And even if they have, for instance, a house, they can sell that house. And as long as they sell that house um, through appropriate channels and take their money and use it on their lawyer, then that money is gone. So in those kinds of situations, we generally are not able to take cases on any kind of contingency basis. And that's where it can become very, very expensive for people to pursue these cases. Um, it's so difficult to tell you how much they're gonna cost. Uh, if it's a question of, of negotiating and, and coming to a quick settlement within two or three months, it probably won't cost you very much. If it's six years into the case and you're gearing up for a trial that is estimated the last six weeks, you're looking at it costing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. So what would be like a cheap $10,000? Um, I'm just, I think we had one case once where um, I talked to the woman she tugged at my heartstrings. I wrote a demand letter and I got a check. So that was, you know, 500 bucks. But I've been doing this for 20 years. It's happened once. It doesn't happen. You know, and, and that was, that was I think, her brother. So, yeah, it was her brother or her cousin. Different, very, very different circumstances there. Any institution, any employer, any uh, government, any um, hospital, any religious institution, any academic institution, basically something that's not a person, um, uh, sporting institution, whatever. So um, in most cases, the institutions are held responsible for their inaction prior to the assault or through a legal mechanism that even if they did everything right, uh, the law will imp impose liability on them regardless. After the assault, depending on what the institution does or does not do, there may be uh, certain mechanisms by which you can also hold them accountable for further damages resulting uh, to you because of, because of what the institution did or did not do. However, um, the difficulty of that is that in, 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 the, in, the, in the world of causation, um, usually the sexual assault is, 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 seen, is deemed to be a much greater uh, damage producer than the institution and how they acted afterwards. It really does depend, however. Um, there have been situations where the institution failed to provide the appropriate care afterwards to the point of further damage taking place. So every case is, is different, but in most situations, um, liability with regards to, to the institution is is, uh, is limited to events prior to the assaults as opposed to um, after the assaults are, are finished. Sometimes the remedy there is to uh, go to the Human Rights Commission, for instance, if the institution does something afterwards that, was, that, um, that violated your rights. But it's difficult to say. It depends on every situation. Are there any differences, and what are those differences between um, the cases you see where men are the plaintiffs or where women or transgender, like how did your gender impact the process? 
Sure. Um, gender impacts across us a great deal um, with regards to our historical cases, our cases where um, people were assaulted as children, we often will have more uh, men come forward. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure why, I think the sociologists can probably explain that to you, but um, the, the bulk, well not the bulk, but more than half of our clients are, are, are men who were abused as children. Um, the flip side of that is that with regards to our adult abuses, um, we have very, very few men who come forward and institute litigation or go to the police if they were assaulted as grown men. Um, men are assaulted just as much as women, well, possibly not just as much, but, but can be assaulted just like women can be assaulted. But I think that it's more difficult for an adult male to come forward and say that. Um, there's a lot of social stigma around that. They're not believed as much, frankly, because of even the way their body reacts sometimes. So it's, it's, it's something that is very difficult for men to come forward and feel as though that they can employ either the criminal system or, or, or the civil system. We often will have men approach us and, and tell us what happened, and it was, it was very clearly an assault, but they choose not to pursue it. Uh, women uh, will come forward often uh, as adults, um, if they, if they are in a situation where they were assaulted as, as adults, much more readily than men will. And these are men um, being assaulted as by other men or by other men? Either. Either. The Criminal Injuries Compensation Board, commonly known as the CICB, is a government-run board that is, um, that is uh, geared towards compensating victims of crime in Ontario, of violent crime in Ontario. So if you have been the victim of a violent crime in Ontario, you can apply to the board for compensation. Uh, the board is set up so as to be as, as, as user-friendly as possible. You don't necessarily need a lawyer to help you with it. Sometimes having a lawyer uh, is helpful if you are particularly vulnerable or don't understand the language very well or, or, or have other types of, types of difficulties. The board's mandate is to understand whether what happened to you fits the definition of a crime. And if it does, uh, then the second part of their, of, of their investigation is the damage caused by that crime. So when you go to the board, um, the first step is, is that you apply. Uh, it's, a, it, it's a form that's filled out. You explain a little bit about what happened, a little bit about what's happened as a result and who the perpetrator was. Um, if there's a conviction, if there's no conviction, if you've gone to the police, if you haven't gone to the police, that's supported by other, other information that you can send to them, including uh, medical records, and they can also ask your doctor or your therapist to provide a medical report or, or, or a psychological report. The hearing is usually in front of two members, and um, the members basically start by asking you what happened and they need to understand what happened so that they can make sure that it fits within the definition of the crime at the time period. And that's because something may be a crime today, but it may not have been a crime 10 years ago. So if it wasn't a crime 10 years ago, unfortunately, they can't do anything about it. 
um, once they determine whether or not it was a crime and whether or not they believe that it happened, um, then the investigation moves to, 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 to what's happened as a result. Um, the physical consequences of the damage, the emotional, the psychological, the mental health consequences. Um, at that point, the members will then decide whether or not you fit into their criteria, and if you do, they will hopefully award you some compensation for pain and suffering, as well as possibility of compensation for out-of-pocket expenses. So if, if something broke, for instance, during the assault uh, or something like that, or um, possibly compensation with regards to loss of income in certain circumstances and uh, compensation for therapy. The amounts that the board can give you are unfortunately very limited. It's a maximum of $25,000 for pain and suffering. There's, there's other monies that can be awarded for those other things that we did mention though, but it is pretty, pretty limited, unfortunately. The good thing about the board is that it, it, um, it's generally a friendly place. Um, the board members do have a job to do and, and they do need to understand whether or not you fit their criteria, but um, in most situations it, it is a relatively friendly place. Um, the other good thing is that it's, 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 a bit, um, it's a bit quicker than civil litigation, it takes about a year to a year and a half. Um, the other thing as well is that you don't necessarily need a lawyer. Uh, you can do this on your on your own. Um, the unfortunate thing about about the board is that, again, the amount of money that they can give you is is limited, um, and the money is not coming from the people who are responsible for this. The money is coming out of the government purse, which means taxes. Um, but what I can tell you is that the experience that we've had with the board um, is that is that many people feel very empowered that somebody listened to their story and believed them. The board's uh, criteria is, um, is, is not as high as, as, as criminal. It's, it's actually the civil standard, which is a, a balance of probabilities as opposed to beyond a reasonable doubt. So um, many times there's nowhere else to go. Uh, you can't find the perpetrator to charge him civilly or, or, or criminally. There's no money there civilly. The board is the only place that you can go to get some sort of validation. And for some people, that's, that's very, very important. Well, most people have a good experience with the board. Not all, but most. Uh, if you have a viable civil case, then generally speaking, going to the board um, is, is not what we advise. And the reason for that is that whatever is produced within the board hearing and the board application uh, is producible within the civil case, so so they have to dovetail perfectly, uh, and if they don't, there's a there's a discrepancy there, and that's not that's not going to be helpful to you. Um, but the real reason, frankly, is that the board has what's called a right of subrogation, which means that if they give you call it ten thousand dollars, if they award you ten thousand dollars and you sue civilly, and you get twenty thousand dollars. They want their ten thousand dollars back, so they can put that back into the pot and help somebody who had no other, no other recourse. How would you change this process, any of the civil suit process, if you could wave a magic wand and change it to make it better? I do have a magic wand. It's in my office from from law school, actually. Uh, <laughs> our systems uh, are are based on the old uh, English system where uh, everything revolved around um, money, essentially. And crimes that involved money were often dealt with much, much stricter than crimes that involved 
personal pain to somebody else. Uh, and I think it's just an evolution of, of that system. I would love for the federal government to look at the criminal system, especially with regards to how uh, sexual assault cases are handled. There are different ways to handle these kinds of cases. Um, some countries have <clears throat> a system that is that is set up differently for sexual assault cases. Um, be nice to see those kinds of changes here in Canada. And I think the sentencing laws uh, across the country need to be changed, frankly, not only for, for, for civil cases. And I don't necessarily mean that they have to be uh, harsher. It depends on the case. Um, I would, I would first and foremost get rid of any kind of confidentiality provisions, period. Um, notwithstanding that in most situations, the confidentiality, if requested, is only in terms of the amount of the settlement, which my clients actually don't mind because it allows them to not tell people how much money they got. Um, there still are some defendants out there who insist on a confidentiality provision that includes what happened. And that to me is perpetuating the very assault, because sexual assault is often a crime of secrecy, and to essentially force a survivor to keep that secret, even after they've settled the suit, is, is wrong. Um, it is something that um, the government doesn't request anymore, most of the churches don't request anymore, most of the churches aid societies don't request anymore, but it's still something that once in a blue moon we get we get we get that kind of situation where we get a defendant to say no you know if i'm going to pay you this money you can't tell anybody um my personal belief and my legal opinion is that those clauses are unenforceable anyway that a canadian judge wouldn't enforce it but it still it still puts a chill on on my clients so i would like to see government legislation that goes uh, that specifically uh, does not allow for any kind of confidentiality clauses in these kinds of cases. Um, so that's one thing, absolutely. Um, I would like to see situations where um, there is a more proactive approach by, by defendants into trying to resolve these cases. Um, some defendants have taken that approach and are, are, are much easier to deal with and my clients um, are generally more satisfied in those kinds of cases where the defendants say, okay, we're not admitting we did anything wrong, but let's try to figure something out. Um, a lot of those times people will, because of the reaction that they're getting, A, they feel better, and they, they don't have their backup as much, um, and sometimes people are willing to take a little bit less money because they've gotten some of the fringe benefits of, of what they were really, really looking for, which is acknowledgement and validation and understanding, and sometimes um, apologies, who knows. Um, one of the things that I would love to see differently is how the government deals with the interaction between settlements and social assistance payments. Uh, right now, if you get a settlement and you're on something like ODSP, you can't, um, you can't continue to get ODSP if you get over a certain amount of money. Um, I'd like to see changes in that. Ontario was, was already very blessed with having a, a very lenient limitation period with regards to sexual assaults, and it would be wonderful to see that happen um, across the country and, frankly, into, into, into the United States because their limitation laws are, are very, very bad for most survivors. Um, I could go on and on and on. What would the ideal limitation be? None. 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 Absolutely. Sexual assault is, is, is not 
is not breaking into somebody's house and stealing your TV. Uh, it's not. Sexual assault is a crime that has such a deep and profound impact on the person's whole psyche, uh, both emotionally and psychologically, that it, it sometimes takes years and decades for the person to understand the very profound consequences that that assault has had on them. Um, sexual assault, most sexual assaults are not horrifically violent in nature. There are some, obviously, but the vast majority of sexual assaults are not violent to the point where there is lasting physical damage. And most people want to get on with their lives. Most people want to slough it off and, 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 and keep going. And the problem with that is that most people aren't actually able to do that. But it may take them years and decades to get to that realization that they actually need help. And everything that, or not everything, but, but a lot of what's gone wrong in their life can be traced back to, to those instances. So that's why it doesn't make sense to have a limitation period. There is no limitation period when it comes to going to the police and there ought not to be with regards to uh, suing civilly. And uh, luckily we have a government who understands that and who has taken very proactive steps to make that a reality. If, you, if your son or daughter came to you uh, as an adult and said, I've been sexually assaulted, you know, having this be like a barring like the exact details, um, would you give them information? Knowing what you know, would you send tell them go report it to the police, or start the civil suit process first? So if it's my son or daughter who comes and tells me that, if my son or daughter came and told me that they were assaulted. The first thing that I would do is uh, is hug them, tell them that I love them, and encourage them to get some very, very good therapy. Um, what they do afterwards uh, is really dependent on what it is that they want. Um, everybody wants something different. Um, none of these options are are perfect. None of these options can take away the horrific crime that was imposed on you. Um, the question is what it is that the individual needs to move forward. And and for a lot of people, they need to do something like go to the police or sue or go to the Criminal Justice Compensation Board as part of their healing journey. Um, but getting a good therapist, a good psychologist, um, maybe even a good psychiatrist, and somebody who specializes in the area of, of sexual trauma, getting that is, is so important. It makes... It, it, it's never going to take it away, but it will make it easier for you to cope. And getting that kind of support actually makes it easier to go through any of the systems that you choose to employ. Um, the fact of the matter is that you don't have to do any of those things. Um, sometimes knowing that you can do something and choosing not to do it is as powerful and as empowering as actually doing it. It's really good advice. <laughs> It's called my Ferrari option. I tell people about it. You know, yeah, like if you're in a Ferrari and you're stopping at a, at, a, at a stoplight and you're in a nice new shiny red convertible Ferrari and this guy comes up to you in a, I don't know, beat up Chevy, right? And he revs his engine and says, come on, let's drag race. Well, why? 
you know, at that point you're looking at him going, dude, I've got the Ferrari. You're spouting smoke out your out your tailpipe. I'm going to win. But you still run through the options, right? If I do it and win, great. I'm pretty much going to win, but it runs risks. What happens if I blow my engine? What happens if I get caught by the police? It's costing me money and it's costing me the possibility of, you know, points or whatever else. You know, you've already won. You're in, you're sitting in the Ferrari. Why do it? For some people, that's the right thing to do. Knowing they can do it, not exercising that options is sometimes really powerful. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in and have a happy Valentine's Day. Whether you are single, in a relationship, it's complicated. Whatever your relationship status is, Valentine's Day is a great day to show yourself some self-love and some compassion and give yourself a big hug. Do something nice for yourself. Treat yourself. Get yourself your own Valentine's Day present. I know I did and I hope you guys will too. Big hugs and thank you so much again for listening. Thank you.